You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. On the afternoon of November 8th, 2005, a geological engineering student named Kenton Carnegie went for a walk in the woods of Saskatchewan. It was supposed to be a 90-minute excursion. Later, as the sun set, he hadn't returned. A search party was formed, and what they found in the woods was horrifying. A beast, or beasts, had torn the young man to pieces. But what animal was responsible? The answer has been surprisingly controversial, with two camps emerging. One side believed it was a bear, and the other that it was wolves. One thing seems clear. If you go into the woods with wolves, believing that they won't harm you, there's a chance you'll find yourself dead wrong. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. Normally I have Ben Radford or Karen Stoll's Know or both with me, but for this episode, circumstances require me to conduct today's episode solo. This episode is a follow-up to our previous episode on wolf attacks and the specter of the big bad wolf. As I researched the case of the 1700 French attacks by the creature known as La Bette, it became clear to me that wolves do kill people and eat them. But if that's true, then why don't we see those kinds of behaviors in North America? I think that question's answered pretty well in our interview today, but it's worth noting that since 2005, we've had at least two probable cases of wolf predation on humans. The case we'll be talking about in this interview is that of Kenton Carnegie, but in 2010 in Alaska, Candace Burner was such a victim as well. And in Russia, India, Afghanistan, and many other places in the world, wherever wolves and humans intersect, there's a risk of such attacks. I don't want to be lurid. The subject matter of this episode is gruesome and frightening. The warning here is not that wolves are fearsome man-killers, but to remember that we humans are made of meat. And when it comes down to it, as far as the wolves are concerned, we're no different from elk or deer or, for that matter, sheep. We're not magically protected by our status as intelligent creatures. Rather, we're damned by our soft bellies and lack of natural defenses. To understand what causes wolves to attack people, we need to understand their behavior. And the study of animal behavior is the job of an ethologist. Today on Monster Talk, we'll be talking with ethologist and professor emeritus of environmental science from the University of Calgary, Canada, Professor Valerius Geist, who has extensively studied the case of Kenton Carnegie and what makes wolves eat people. 
Monster Talk. So you're a Valerius Geist, and you're an ethologist and professor emeritus of environmental science at the University of Calgary? Yes. Okay. And um, I came across your name while researching wolf behavior and yes. wolf, wolf violence. And, right. And uh, specifically about the case of Kenton Carnegie, who was killed in an animal yes, attack in indeed. 2000. That, that's right. Yes, I was very much involved in that because his family asked me to investigate this. And I was one of three scientists who totally independently uh, investigated the case and came to the conclusion that it was wolves that killed him. And, of course, uh, prepared ourselves for uh, to go to court on that. And it was Mark McNay from Alaska who was chosen uh, by the court to be the speaker. I don't tell, want to tell you the circumstances, but he did an absolutely first-rate job. Okay. And Mark McNay also left a, lay, a large, very large um, report, which was not published. And my report was not published either, incidentally, but mine has been circulating, at least, in the Internet. That's true. We'll link to that in the show notes. Now, before we talk about the case, how did you come to study the aggressiveness of wolves? Uh, very simply, I have, uh, as you see, I'm a zoologist. I retired, and I, we have an acreage on Vancouver Island. We uh, moved to this acreage in 1955, and this was a wild bird paradise. We had trumpeter swans in the meadows, Canada geese, pheasants, and about 120 deer also scattered through the meadow systems back of our house. And so for the next four years, and being a zoologist, of course, and a hunter, I censored these, and we had about 30-some uh, deer per square mile at that time point. And then, and I, was, I saw once, uh, and only once, I saw a wolf track, and I was very um, excited by that, because I had seen and observed wolves when I was doing my uh, studies of stone sheep and mountain goat, goats in Northern Bridge, Columbia, in 1961 to 65. And I had wolves visiting my area quite commonly, about once every two weeks. And they were, uh, there was a group of seven that repeatedly came, and they were uh, very visible because they were out in the open above Timberline. It was an ideal uh, situation, much better than anything my good friend David Meach, for instance, had. And so uh, my uh, views of wolves were then formed by observing these very shy, very beautiful, very large animals, etc., now, I did work, of course, with large mammals, but only with the hoofed large mammals, with the prey of wolves, basically, and wrote in 1998 uh, a book about deer, uh, which I um, basically offered the opinion that various species differed by their anti-predator uh, strategies. But though I had not really studied the predators myself to an extent, but the, the, I have studied the prey in detail. And then... In 1999, on 8th of uh, January, in fact, my son was here, and we went out after a snowfall, and lo and behold, we discovered a pair of wolf tracks uh, further back into an area where there were quite a few deer. And I said to my son, by golly, maybe we're going to have a pack this summer. Well, that's what we did. And within three months, we had no more deer. They were gone completely. There were snowfalls in November, and uh, I was out there censusing, and there was not a track available. So the wolves then settled themselves around our neighbor's place because he had sheep. They were attracting, uh, they were very attractive to these uh, animals. He had a five dogs, and the wolf pack and the dogs developed a deer enemy complex because they met roughly at 5:30 at a uh, old railway grade. One uh, pack on one side, the dogs on the other, and they howled and barked at each other. And this was a ritual you could set your clock by uh, for a while. So uh, these wolves then uh, ran basically out of food and began targeting people. And I reported on that in, at a, a meeting of the Wildlife Society. 
and described in some detail the seven steps by which you can recognize that wolves are targeting people. And it turns out that six years earlier, uh, two scientists in California had des- described exactly the seven se- same steps for coyotes when they were targeting children in urban parks. So this is how I got into it. And I was, um, because we suddenly were confronted with wolves, and wolves were behaving here in a manner that nobody had ever written about in North America. But they were behaving very much like Russian wolves. And so uh, one thing led to the next, and I began to study uh, wolves from the perspective of when do wolves become dangerous to people. And uh, it's an incredible story in many regards, but that's how it began. So the Carnegie case in particular was very tragic, but it was also... Oh my God, was it ever tragic. Horribly tragic. Yeah, it was really frustrating to read about the the struggle between people who wanted it to not be a wolf killing and those who said it was. Right. So how how did that play out? Well, the the way it played out was the following. The people that wanted to make sure that it was not a wolf was basically Paul Paquette. Paul Paquette is a, a scientist whom I have known since he was a graduate student. And I knew him as a professor, as a graduate student. He was a fairly good man. But he has become not a scientist nowadays, but an advocate. And you see, from the perspective of the wolf people in those days, it was unthinkable that wolves would tackle humans because there was no history of that in North America. And later on, I'll tell you why there wasn't a history. There's a very good explanation for that. But let's stay with Paul Paquette. So as it started out, shortly after Kenton was killed, two people that are of similar importance came to inspect the location. One was a lady. She was the coroner. She was also the um, information officer for the tribe, basically. And this lady had been raised in northern Saskatchewan until she was 14 years of age uh, in the bush. And she was raised by her father as a hunter and a trapper and a fisher. In other words, she was very, very, very familiar how to make a living in the bush as a child, as a teenager. In other words, she had a very, very good education in tracking. The second person was the um, constable. He was also a native from northern British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and he was also uh, raised as a hunter and trapper. And these people were on the spot, and the um, RCMP officer, the native RCMP officer, still saw the wolves there. He fired the shotgun uh, to scare them away, <clears throat> and they inspected the area in detail. And these, between these two people, they wrote a very good report about what has happened. Now, when this report went to the coroner of Saskatchewan, the man probably didn't realize the significance of the people that had investigated this tragedy, and he wanted to have it hardened up by doing it via the scientific route. And so he got two uh, scientists involved from the University of Saskatchewan. The other one was Paul Paquette. Well, Paul Paquette came, and all that Paul Paquette had to work with is what the rest of us had to work with after uh, the, uh, the fact. And that was the pictures taken by the constable of the tragedy and the scene. And I can tell you the pictures of, <clears throat> of the body is something the most horrible you can imagine. They are not available. God thanks. The family has withdrawn them, and they're keeping them under lock and key, basically. And I don't have them either. I returned my copies to them. But when Paul looked at the pictures, he saw that there was a lake, and uh, there were very large holes in the snow. And he said, this couldn't possibly be wolves. It must be a bear. Well, what he made a mistake of was so elementary that it, particularly in the coroner's hearing that it came out, was so embarrassing, is um, that if you live in the North Country and you travel across a lake, 
you know very well that the lake ice buckles and that there are going to be uh, lenses of water standing on the ice covered by snow and you are going to break through those things, guaranteed. And so if you walk across it, <clears throat> it's going to be your footsteps in the snow <clears throat> very nicely, and all of a sudden, boom, you break through into the water below, which is usually about six inches or something like that. Normally, uh, these um, overflows are quite uh, shallow, yeah? And you're going to have a huge footprint as a consequence. And that's elementary tracking. Everybody who has worked to any extent in the North Country, like I have, uh, knows right away that if anything runs across the lake, you're going to have these big uh, things as well as the uh, the tracks. What counts was, of course, the tracks on land as they came out of the uh, from the ice. And so we then took the pictures, and I know that Mark McNay took his to uh, four colleagues in Alaska, and they examined everything. They could find only wolf tracks and a uh, fox track, <clears throat> incidentally, and I sent mine to some colleagues in Finland. Not that I cannot interpret, I can. And I interpreted the, the, what I saw in front of me as being wolf tracks. And they also came up, which is very cute, with a fox track. And there's no bear tracks there anywhere. <clears throat> there are human tracks, wolf tracks, yes, but no bear tracks. And besides, there was fresh snow on the ground. So uh, that was a group of scientists that examined in post hoc. But after the uh, coroner, um, and the uh, officers had examined them. The uh, Saskatchewan government sent up two game wardens. Now, they came a day late, and they also examined the scene, and they also could find nothing else except the wolf uh, tracks. And remember, if a bear had gone into the area, no matter how much trampling had occurred in the spare, uh, spot where uh, Kenton Carnegie was killed, it all, all you had to do was go a little bit further to see where if the bears, if they were entering, uh, were coming, and you would see the track. And bear track is utterly unmistakable. None of that was uh, happening. So we had two native people that examined the track. We had two very competent hunters, incidentally, uh, also examining this area. They only found uh, wolf tracks. We had two um, game wardens examining this. They also found nothing else. And we had, uh, looking at the pictures, four um, scientists from Alaska and two scientists from Finland and myself and Mike McNay and another um, gentleman from Ontario, another scientist from Ontario. All we saw was wolf tracks. Now, the only way a bear could have been there is if he had wings, he was flying, and his feet never touched the telltale snow. Which is very unusual for bears, right? <laughs> it would have been a touch unusual for bears. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur <laughs> injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. 
A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. No, and uh, I have written a, a lengthy article on, about that, just to clarify it. And there's been another article, a good one, that came out uh, on it as well. They are available, and I can send them to you if and when you need them. But what was more interesting to me was to then investigate why, uh, what were the circumstances that led to this huge tragedy, and why did it happen, and why, for that matter, did we have wolves behaving one way globally, and quite another one in North America. And it was crystal clear that here on the island, I had the situation where the wolves were behaving globally. I called them, they behaved like Russian wolves. And the conditions of, of, of these were that they run out of food, basically, that they are in close proximity to uh, habitations, that they then take down dogs and cats, then they turn on to livestock, and eventually they target human beings. We're the very last in line, mind you, but we are still on the menu. The very last one, mind you. So what's the difference between here, Russia, uh, oh my God, in uh, France, there's a book out where the historian describes uh, over 3,000 deaths, 3,000 people killed in France. And in Italy, something similar, in Germany, anyway. Why the difference? Well, the difference is very simple. From 1920 onwards into the 30s, 40s, 50s, ending in the um, 60s. We had a situation where in the heartland of wolf distribution in North America, which is Canada, northern Canada, there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of impoverished men, trappers, which were trying to make a grub stake catching fur and making less than $500 a winter, incidentally. And desperately poor men, particularly in the 1920s and 30s. And that was virtually the only uh, thing to have. There was no, um, uh, no social assistance or anything of this nature. If you wanted to eat, you better have money. The only way you got money was you went trapping. And so we had, uh, in Alberta alone, 5,000 trappers, uh, licensed trappers. British yeah? <clears throat> Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and so on and so on and so forth. You can see there are tens of thousands of trappers. Now, these trappers <clears throat> had no loves for wolves. Guaranteed, because for two reasons. Whenever wolves show up, game disappears, and the men have nothing to hunt and kill for themselves and their dog teams. And that was very bitter when that happened. There was nothing to uh, sneeze about. Uh, I have followed the writings of some of these trappers. They escaped uh, uh, starvation, sometimes by a hair. It was so important for them to have wildlife available to kill and to shoot for themselves. So when wolves showed up, gone, gone was the wildlife. The second reason is that wolves followed their uh, traps, uh, trap lines, which were very long, and the wolves could travel a long ways, and the wolves would destroy the fur that they had caught. So they had absolutely no love for wolves, and with every means, legal or illegal, they were trying to capture these wolves on the trap line. <clears throat> now, they were on top of that encouraged by a bounty. And the bounty was set in such a fashion that it was worth worthwhile bringing in the wolf for bounty than selling the fur. And uh, this was recognized. Uh, the worthlessness of the fur, in other words, was recognized. So all they had to bring in in Alberta was just simply the scalp of the wolf. And they were getting their full, full payment then. So first of all, the trappers 
encouraged by a bounty and the misbehavior of wolves, were trying to kill every wolf possible. Then there were native people, which were also participating, but which we know very, very little. On top of that, we had predator control officers, which were operating in the livestock zones, and they were killing every wolf inside. Then it was taken as good behavior and good form for wardens, I know that in British Columbia, to go out after the season poisoning wolves. On top of that, you had an open season on wolves for anybody to kill them anytime, anyplace, uh, wherever you want to. Now, from the bounty records, we know that the trappers brought in for bounties roughly in Alberta about a <clears> thousand <throat> wolves a year uh, <clears throat> at peak periods. And it turns out that there's roughly one wolf killed for every five trappers. It means it's not that easy to do so. Well, in addition to that, a rabies breakout in the early 1950s in the north led to fairly massive wolf poisoning from the air by horse meat being thrown out of aircraft and uh, onto lakes and along river systems and so on and so forth. And that was terminated in 1961. And that's when I went to the wilderness, incidentally, 1961. And we had wild duck coming out of our ears at that point because of the uh, well, severe reduction in wolf populations which were taking place. But the most important thing is that everybody who knew wolves in Canada, myself included, knew them only when they were at low concentration, absent in most areas, very, very shy, and these wolves were, of course, no problem. They didn't kill livestock because if they did, they were dead in a very short time, killed by livestock, by uh, federal control officers. Uh, And the wolf is, in fact, some of the most remarkable observations were made in that period because we had a height of rabbit concentrations, which happened every 10 years, and the wolves were taking advantage of those. And when they were on a rabbit field, they ignored everything. And so uh, my good friend, uh, the late Reinhold Eben Ebenau, describes how wolves are hunting rabbits right in amongst wintering moose, and the wolves don't give a damn about the moose, and the moose don't give a damn about the wolves. Remarkable observations of that kind. Yeah. So when the wolves are at very, very low number when they're being controlled by one of the most murderous machines that has ever existed in controlling wolves. Of course, there are no attacks on humans. There are no attacks on wild, on, uh, on uh, livestock to speak of. Wolves are very shy, indeed. It's only when they run out of feed, when they are in close proximity of humans, that they become uh, a totally different animal. And so everybody who has studied wolves ignored what I have just told you. They were not aware of that. And they thought the kind of wolf that they met was the natural behavior of wolves. It wasn't. It was the most unnatural behavior because it was an artifact of extreme control. What are the signs that wolves will hunt humans? The signs are that they begin to observe humans. They sit down and watch and watch and watch and watch humans. Yeah. And eventually they come closer and closer to humans. My wife and I have experienced a wolf coming to within about 10 paces of us, standing there, watching us. Uh, Wolves are observation learners. We know that from uh, studies carried out by colleagues that studied wolves, you see. They're observation learners, and they learn. uh, I don't don't want to go into detail, but the point is, this is how you know that the wolves are targeting you because they keep on, keep on watching and watching and following you and watching you. And then comes the preliminary attacks, which were beautifully uh, described for the Kenton Carnegie case because four days before he was killed, uh, two wolves attacked two um, 
men from the camp, one a pilot, the other one a um, physicist, and the two young men grabbed hold of uh, little trees growing in the bog and smashed them uh, towards the wolves and kept the wolves away and thought it was a lark, basically, and uh, returned to camp, but they took beautiful pictures of the wolves and thought this was an uh, exploratory attack. And that's totally predictable. So it sounds like in India, from my research, as well as in Russia... Uh, oh, my it, God, yes. India and Russia and Japan and uh, Korea and uh, Turkey, <laughs> uh, Finland, uh, Germany, France, Italy, all of those places. There's reference. If you were, if, I, uh, if you had the time, I could send you uh, the articles I've written about that, uh, and my originals have all the references in it. And yet, you can look at that. Yet there seems to be this sort of uh, myth that wolves don't harm people. That's a myth. That, and by the way, this myth has killed not uh, just Kenton Carnegie. It killed three people that I know of. Well, that that is very helpful. I really appreciate your time on this. Okay, I have to run, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. You're, so thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. And we'll put links to your material on the website. Thank you. Monster Talk. Thank you for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today you heard an interview with Professor Valerius Geis discussing the causes of wolf attacks on humans. Monster Talk is produced with the support of Skeptic Magazine and listeners like you. You can donate to Monster Talk on our website by going to monstertalk.org or skeptic.com. Let me tell you about a new project which needs your help. I want to get transcripts of our show. On average, it's going to cost me about $70 an episode to do this, but there's two major benefits of this project. First, it will allow Google searches to find the episodes and increase the likelihood of a monster-curious netizen to find our show. Second, it will allow Wikipedia authors to easily link to our show for reference purposes. I think some really important facts have been revealed here on Monster Talk that aren't widely known on the Internet. Your donation to our transcript project will help get those facts out to the general public. If you can't afford a donation, don't feel guilty. You can still support the show for free by recommending it to your friends or by giving us a positive review on iTunes. You might also enjoy the Monster Talk fan page on Facebook. There you can meet other Monster Talk fans and get a lot of really fun monster news and commentary from the many talented and knowledgeable listeners who are probably a lot like you. Just search for Monster Talk on Facebook or follow the link at monstertalk.org. Music during the introduction was by Symbian Project and used by permission. A link to the tracks will be in the show notes. And Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. I am the bad wolf. I create myself. I take the words. I scatter them. In time and space. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.